G'day, I'm Adam Spencer and this is City Talks, brought to you by the City of Sydney. City Talks is about starting a conversation, a healthy community discussion about important and innovative global, national and local city issues. In this podcast series, we feature some curated highlights from the City Talks public speaker series, recorded live at Sydney Town Hall. Christiana Figueres is a world authority on climate change and was the driving force behind the historic 2015 Paris Agreement. Now, if you've ever tried to organise the seats for a wedding, you might think you've been involved in some delicate negotiations. Well, imagine trying to bring together politicians, business leaders, think tanks, NGOs, religious leaders, tech startups and innovators from almost 200 countries in record time to forge an international accord on a subject as complex and controversial as climate policy. Well, do that, she did. She's since gone on to be the vice chair of the Global Covenant of Mayors for Climate and Energy. And, born in Costa Rica, she speaks English, German and Spanish. It's fair to say she certainly knows some stuff. In this episode of City Talks, Christiana kicks off a conversation about how inequality, rising population and political instability are all contributing to an uncertain future, particularly when it comes to climate. She also talks about the roles that cities and governments can take in tackling these challenges. Now, one little thing. You might hear Christiana make a hat reference. To let you in on the joke, she's talking about an Akubra. And no, Akubra are not official sponsors of this podcast. But if you're listening, it does get a massive round of applause. Trust me, you had to be there. Take it away, Christiana Figueres. The last time I was in Australia... It was uh, during a time, you will remember, about three or four years ago in which you were having very, very bad bushfires. And I made the mistake of uh, saying publicly that I thought that there might be a relationship between increasing bushfires and climate change. And uh, I was uh, therefore told uh, publicly that uh, I was talking out of my hat. And since I didn't know what that meant, I asked one of my Australian friends, I said, what on earth does that mean? And he said, well, it means you're talking rubbish. I went, oh, okay. Well, I was wondering which hat are they talking about because I usually wear several hats. So today, as I returned to Australia, I thought the only appropriate hat is this one. So it is a delight to be back in, uh, in this fantastic, fantastic country. Um, and I, if I wear a hat, I can't think. <laughs> I'm going to have to put it down there for the time being. Uh, but my friends, you know, it is a little bit concerning that I am back three or four uh, years later and uh, I find that Australia is still in the crossroads uh, of energy and climate policy uh, once again. In fact, uh, one could say we have been at the same crossroads for about 10 years, which is rather concerning given the fact that by this time, uh, 90% of the population, uh, and I'm sure all of you know that there is uh, not just a responsibility but a huge opportunity in addressing climate change. And I think we also all know that this is not a political issue. This is certainly not about partisan politics. It's not about turning left or turning right. 
This is about the long-term intergenerational justice. That is what is it about. And in the short term, it's about dependable electricity that is low cost and low emissions. And all of those things actually can be done and can be pursued together. So, you know, we used to think that decarbonizing the global economy was actually a huge burden and that it was a huge responsibility that we had to do whether we liked it or not and whether we got anything out of it or not. Fortunately, now we understand that that is not so. That actually decarbonizing the economy is the best vehicle through which to improve the well-being of citizens, cities, states, and nations. And let me just give you two examples in two sectors. What has happened in the 10 years in which Australia federal government has been in hiatus? In the electricity sector, can you believe that in the last 10, uh, 10 years, the global price of renewables has come down 90% on solar and 50% on, uh, on wind? We are already investing more than $300 billion globally into renewable energy, and we are duplicating the installed capacity of renewable energy every five years, moving into an exponential curve on the installed capacity of our renewables, which is actually bringing the price down even more. The competitive of renewable energy is already established in most jurisdictions, and it is only going to grow exponentially because we're applying demand response, storage, and optimizing integration of renewables into the grid with artificial intelligence. So a very exciting prospect uh, for renewable energy. And the fact is that the competitiveness of renewable energy plus the health aspects of coal and the water requirements of coal have actually already put a huge pressure down on coal. China, India, and Korea are my three examples because they are three important trading partners of Australia. China, on its own, is investing $300 billion into renewables before 2020 and creating not one or two or three, 13 million new jobs in renewable energy. They are the number one producer of solar technology, the number one producer just, uh, just moved up to number one of wind technology, and they have stopped constructing coal plants. They have shut down old coal plants, and they have just announced this morning that they are beginning to assess what they're going to do on cars. Now, I don't want to say that China is an angel. They're also financing coal plants in other countries as well as in their own. But you get the picture. The pendulum is beginning to swing away from coal. India, the country that everybody thought, oh my gosh, that's going to be China's moving forward, but India is going to be the country that is going to be a problem. Not so. India has canceled more than 100 coal plants. They have already put a moratorium on coal to the year 2027, moratorium on any new coal up until the year 2027, by which time they expect to be at 60% renewable energy on their grid. Not 40, which is what they promised under Paris. They now know because solar is so much cheaper than coal in India. Adani, did you hear that? Some few, a few last uh, words on closing on the geopolitics of renewable energy. Do you remember when we were growing up that uh, 
sorry, I'm 61. I'm assuming everybody is uh, much younger than I. So maybe your, uh, your education was different than I, but I was taught in school that geopolitics uh, was very, very linked to fossil fuels because those countries that own the fossil fuels are really uh, the powerhouses of the world, and we have seen wars being fought either about those fossil fuels in the ground or about the roots of transportation of those fossil fuels. Well, guess what? Now that fossil fuels are on the descent and that renewable energy is on the ascent, two very important geopolitical shifts, seismic shifts. Number one, the geographic concentration of power is no longer with those countries that have the fossil fuels. We are having a dissolution of that con geographic concentration of power because every country is very quickly being able to produce power with the energy that belongs to them, endogenous energy from their own sources on their own land, sun, wind, water. Uh, a huge democratization of energy that is really going to turn around the differential power that has been exerted uh, by those countries that have the fossil fuels. And the second shift, very interesting, the shift of economic power is now moving away from those who own fossil fuels to those actually in two different directions. Those countries that own the minerals and the rare elements that are going to be used for the new technologies of the 21st century. Lithium to begin with, Australia, number one country with the largest reserves of lithium, uh, and then Chile, China, and Argentina falling right behind. Huge possibility there to exercise economic power, or the other way to exercise your economic power in this century is actually to develop the advanced technologies. No wonder then that the Persian Gulf is already uh, investing in the advanced solar technologies because that is what it's going to take. So my friends, here is my invitation for Australia. What does all of this mean for Australia? It means that Australia has a fantastically bright future in front of it. Uh, and as we hopefully finally emerge out of this 10-year uh, hiatus in which we don't know what direction we're moving in, um, I would certainly hope that not just the leadership at the top, but that the collective leadership of both public and private sector, that the collective leadership that is responsible for leading an economy that is over a trillion dollars, I am very much hoping that that collective leadership, as you move this economy forward, is actually going to be looking through the windshield into the future and not through the rear view mirrors into the past. There is a difference of where you put your sight. Honestly, you have everything it takes to be an absolute leader in the 21st century. And therefore, my friends, I look forward to returning to Australia once the direction of that future has been set. And I certainly am confident that that is not going to take 10 years. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Christiana Figueres. I hope you've enjoyed this City Talk brought to you by the City of Sydney. If you want to hear more from other experts passionately committed to enhancing life in our cities, download City Talks from wherever you get your podcast fix. And if you're listening to us in Sydney, keep your eye out for more live City Talk events on the City of Sydney website. I'm Adam Spencer. Bye-bye.